You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com. If you're joining us online today, we just want to give a special welcome to you. Um, If you're... uh, uh, joining us for the first time, you just want to indicate that on the platform you're watching. We'd like to, to know that you're watching with us. And I um, uh, just want to encourage you to, to uh, be finding a church home as well if, uh, if you're able to do that. So this morning, we are going to get back into Romans 11, okay? Back in September, we started uh, Romans 9. We're going to wrap it up, this section, Romans 9 through 11. Paul has been answering the question uh, whether or not God has changed his plans in regards to Israel. And uh, of course, as we've been learning, there's this question like, okay, well, it seems like a lot of Gentiles are being saved now, but but, uh, not a lot of Jews. And so has God now changed his plan? If the Gentiles, his people, what what are we to make of this? And so for um, Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul has been answering that question. As we got to chapter 11, uh, just to review, uh, Paul has been highlighting the fact that God still has a plan for Israel, as he's been doing throughout these chapters. God is the one who still sovereignly calls people to salvation. It is he who graciously saves, and it is he who judiciously hardens, we learned as well. It was his incredible plan to save Gentiles through the Jews' uh, rejection of the salvation. Uh, Do you remember that? Uh, Why have Gentiles now received salvation? Because the Jews rejected the the message of salvation. And we've seen that pattern. Paul would go to a synagogue. They would listen for a time. And then they would uh, rally against him and force him to leave. And then he would go to the Gentiles with the message of salvation. And so we'd see this pattern over and over again. But God's not done with the nation of Israel, as we learned last time we studied this text as well. There are some, there's a remnant who are being saved due to their jealousy when they see the faith of you and I, and what, that we have this special time, this special time, this special relationship with the Lord as a result of what Christ has done. They are caused to envy and jealousy, and they come to faith, we learned in the text. But one day... There'll be many in Israel who will come to faith. And, uh, and we await that time. It's still not here yet. It's, uh, but once, as we're going to see in the text today, once the fullness of the Gentiles comes, then the fullness of Israel will come. And there'll be many come to faith in that day. Paul is just now wrapping up the chapter. We're going to finish things up. And really the nail that we see, the, the, the culmination of it all ought to be for you and I as believers is worship. Worship. Are we passionate, as our distinctive says, are we passionate in our worship? Uh, sometimes people try to fake that, right? So, you know, like, okay, we're supposed to be passionate in our worship. Okay, so you know, let's get some smoke going in the room and some flashing lights and, you know, kind of hype up the room. And like now we're going to be passionate in our worship. But the passion should, should just be almost involuntary. You know what I'm saying? Like, let's say your team was winning some games, okay? You like sports and, and your team was, wins the game. You have this involuntary response of like, yay, all right? Like you, you cheer. It just, you, you didn't plan it. It just happens. And so it is with worship. When we have a proper understanding of who God is and what he has done, you cannot help but worship. And as the people of God, we should be growing in our worship daily. Here's kind of a weird question. Would you say as we get to near the end of 2021 that you are a better worshiper now than you were at the beginning of the year? What what do I mean by that? Do I know my God more than I knew him at the beginning of the year? Do I I long to to be in his presence? When, When life is hard, do I turn to him? Is that what I do in my life? Do I, do I, as Isaiah 61 says, do I put on a garment of praise 
for a spirit of heaviness. That I get my eyes on him and then the cares of this world kind of just fade away. We should be growing in our worship. In staff, we, we went through this book by David Wells and he has this chapter on worship. He says this, worship is essential to our sanctification. It is at the same time an essential expression of our sanctification. Like if you're, if the idea of worshiping God bores you, I'm concerned about where your heart's at. And if you think worship is simply singing a song, you've missed it as well. Worship is expressions of worth for the king, whether that be through song or whether that be through my words as, as I'm just talking and to someone else or whether that be through my actions. Worship ought to be a lifestyle for the believer. As we're gonna to get to the end of the chapter, all for his glory, everything that we do. Wells also says this, worship is our response to what he has done. Worship undoubtedly can have its benefits. However, it is not primarily about finding comfort, inspiration, or social connections, or being entertained. It is primarily about adoration and praise being directed to God simply for who he is and what he has done. And if you have not a lot of inclination to praise him, then I would say your knowledge of him is lacking. And so if you want to become a better worshiper, then you ought to be growing in your knowledge of him. Because when you get a glimpse of him, you can't help but worship him. And so this is the culmination that Paul is bringing us to as we get to this awesome 11 chapters of Romans. Like, hasn't it been like, we've been studying it for a while. Some of you are like, well, this is my second week here, or this is my first week. But like the, 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 the richness of Romans 1 through 11, as Paul describes who our God is, what he's done for our salvation, cannot but help but end in doxology. And that's exactly what Paul's going to do this morning. So before we get uh, into the text this morning, let me pray for us one more time, and then we'll get into it. God, we, we are here because you placed us here. God, we are breathing air today because you continue to make it so. All that we have, all that we are, is from you. And so, God, we come before you in awe this morning. God, you know everything. You know every person's heart here this morning. You know their burdens, you know their hurts, you, Lord, you know their joys, their hopes. God, you know everything about them. And God, I pray that as we study this text this morning, that we would be caused to worship. That, that we, would, we would, it would just be involuntary, God, where we were just like, we can't help but worship as we, as we get our eyes fixed upon you. That ought to be the response of your people. Lord, you are worthy of our praise. God, forgive us, Lord, when we don't make much of you. And this morning, Lord, as we study, God, I pray that your spirit would lead us and guide us, that, Lord, we would know you more, that we would love you better as a result of our study together this morning. We pray that your spirit would lead this preacher, that we might hear from you. It's your name we pray. Amen. All right, so everyone needs a Bible. Romans chapter 11, 25 to 36 is what we're going to be studying. If you don't have a Bible, just slip up your hand. The ushers will be happy to get you a copy of God's Word. We want to look down at it together, right? What does God's Word say? It is our authority, and it does not change. And in this world of shifting sands, I don't know about you, but I find this more and more a comfort every day because it does not change. In a world that's continually changing, this does not change. It is our rock. It is our anchor. And we must know what it says. And so we come with anticipation as we read these verses, Romans eleven twenty-five: Lest you be wise in your own sight. 
I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too now have been, now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This morning, as we study the text, we're going to see four reasons to praise the Lord. Obviously, there's many, many more than four, but in the text, we're going to see four different reasons to praise the Lord. The first thing we see is that we should praise Him grasping His mission. As we understand God's plan of salvation, we ought to praise Him. That should be our response to understanding His mission. He says in verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight. Again, he's, he's talking directly at this point to the Gentile believers. He's saying, lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. Brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the mystery of the Gentiles has come in. Lest you be wise in your own sight. Now, never a good thing, right? Being wise in our own sight, we think about the original sin, Genesis 3, Eve heard from God and what, he was, what she was to do and not to do in regards to the tree, but she did what? Verse 6 of Genesis 3, when the women saw that the tree was good for food and it was delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. What she did was she made a judgment call. She was wise in her own eyes, and as a result, sin came into the world. So Paul is saying, listen, do not be wise in your own sight. Do not be prideful. In order for our pride to be broken, we need truth. And Stott says the complete antidote to pride is truth. And so he says, listen, you need to understand the mystery. When you look around and you see many of the Gentiles being saved and so few of the Jews being saved, it's not a reason for you to become all puffed up. What you need to understand is that God has what? He's brought a partial hardening to Israel at this time. It's for a time. What's the time limit? The time limit is until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. This, this word for fullness, it's completion. Until all, I believe is what the text is saying, until all the Gentiles have been saved. That's how long this hardness of Israel will be. Now, just to recall, in case you're just visiting with us for the first time this morning, that doesn't mean Jews are still not being saved today. There are still a remnant being saved. But what he's talking about, this hardening of Israel, the nation, the, the, the majority of the people, they, this hardness of them not turning to him will only last until all the Gentiles have been saved. Paul then highlights what this salvation will look like by quoting once again from the Old Testament over and over again. Have you not seen this? He's like, don't believe me, believe the scriptures. And Isaiah 59, 20 and 21 is where he's quoting from right here. He says, in this way, all Israel will be saved. And the question is, who, what? Who's all of Israel? 
And a lot more ink than maybe you might think has been spilt on that question over the years. Uh, some of the, the reformers back in the 1500s, they said, well, Israel, we know that the church has now replaced Israel, and so it's the church. But if you look at it exegetically, it's been like the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel. We can't just kind of flip it all of a sudden and say, well, now in this verse, it's the church. Right? So it is Israel. It's the nation of Israel. And when we think of all, in this particular case, it would be all those whom God saves. Right? As, as again, as we've been learning, not all Israel is Israel. But when God saves them, they are Israel. And so there'll be a majority of Israel be sa being saved. How? It says that the deliverer will come from Zion, and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This word for deliverer deliver, is to rescue from danger with the implication that the danger in question is severe and acute. Well, eternal damnation is severe and acute, right? That's what he's delivering them from. And what's interesting is we look at Isaiah 59, again, remembering that's written about 600 years before Christ came, that, that this deliverer would come from Zion. Now, it could mean one of two things, and both we can find in the Bible, but Hebrews 12, 22 says that there's a heavenly Zion, and we know right now Christ is at the right hand of the throne of God, and, and he's going to come back. He's going to return. So he could be talking about the heavenly Zion, or we also know in the, in the scriptures that Christ will return to Jerusalem. Zion is Jerusalem. So he could be meaning he's going to come from heaven, or he could be saying, hey, he's going to be coming from Jerusalem. Either works, right? And when he comes, did you catch that? He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Like, how incredible is that? Like, no more. No more sin. Done. It's banished. Like, it seems unreal in the society and the world in which we live, doesn't it? I mean, sin is just rampant. It, it is all over the world, and, and it's seeming, seemingly increasingly so. People inventing new ways to be wicked, right? But when Christ returns at the completion of the salvation of the Gentiles, and when Israel will then be saved, <clears throat> excuse me, there will be what? No more sin. No more sin. How, how did that happen? Is it, is it going to be a special plan for the Jews? Like for Gentiles, here's Jesus. But for them, it's something totally different, like it's based on their old covenants. No, it's Jesus, right? Jesus is that deliverer who will come from Zion. And how will their sin be dealt with? We see that in verse 27. And this is my covenant with them. When I take away their sins, God will take away their sins just as he's taken away my sin, your sin, through his payment upon the cross. And they will, it says in Zechariah, they will see him and they will repent. They will repent. They will, they, will, they will see the one whom they have pierced and they will repent. What an awesome day that will be. And then sin is banished on planet earth. That's going to be a great day. This is not some fairy tale. This is not like, you know, Lord of the Rings or something. This is fact. This is coming. This day is coming. Who could do such a thing? Who, who, could, who could change our world as it is right now? Only our God. Only our God. When you consider these things, how could you not but worship him? When you think about the fact that God, long before, it says, it says before the foundation of the world, before creation, God had this plan of salvation. And we see, like, the early chapters of Genesis, it was going really well for mankind, right? Well, for two of them. And then sin comes in in Genesis 3, and by chapter 6, he's destroying the earth other than a family. Like, that's, that's us. And afterwards, what? 
Like Noah was so godly and everything was so great. Like what? No, it wasn't. Like it was not good at all. And, and then we got the Tower of Babel and, and God's like, okay, plan Genesis 12. I'm choosing Abram. I'm choosing. I'm pulling him out of his idolatry and I'm going to make a nation through him. And, and, and then from that, what? We know we're told as you get to Genesis 50 that, that through Jacob's line, there's going to be a ruler coming. Sorry, Judah's line. There's going to be a ruler coming. And there's this anticipation as you get to Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. As you go through the Old Testament, there's someone coming who's going to take care of it all. And it's Jesus Christ. And he came the first time. And in that plan of salvation that God had, Christ dealt with our sin. He defeated sin, death, and Satan on that day. And now... There's this offer of salvation going out all over the world until the day when he will come and he will banish sin forever. This is our God. We ought to praise him. Do you wake up every morning just like, <laughs> are you kidding me? I am a child of the king. I, I get to worship him. As you got up this morning, you were like, okay, Sunday. Reminds me what? This was the day of the week that my Savior rose from the dead. And as you drove here where you're like, okay, we get to worship together. We get, as we sing, we get to proclaim the truth about our God to one another as the body of Christ. We get to be reminded that we're not alone in this world. God has not only redeemed us to be his own, but he's redeemed us to be a part of the family of God. And we are brothers and sisters. Is that, is that get your juices going in the morning? Do you get excited about these things? If, if your worship is lacking, if your heart is dull, then I, can I encourage you again, get into the word. Be studying about our Savior. Start picking apart verse by verse. There's a, every year I, just, I choose a, a selection of guys and we go through some different things. And we just finished the hermeneutics again this year. And, and it is so incredible to just say, okay, let's just take this verse. All right, let's just start pulling it apart and let's just see what's in here. And as you do, just to see the riches that are there that tell us about our God. Like you're never going, if you are, if you have the spirit of God living within you and you pick up this book, you will never be bored for the rest of your life. There's always something for you to learn about our King. And so as we think about his mission, which is one of the central themes from Genesis right through Revelation, we can't help but praise him. Second thing, praise him appreciating his morality. Appreciating his morality. What do you mean by that? God is not like us. He is holy. When he says he's going to do something, he does it. Let's look at verses 28 and 29. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Paul is now just summarizing everything he's been talking about. Again, remember, he's talking to the Gentile believers. They're, they're, they are enemies for your sake, right? You think about, you know, reading through the book of Acts, Jewish people were not excited about Christianity for the whole, right? We see men like Paul persecuting the church, having Christians imprisoned, having Christians killed. They, they were very much against the believers. But it says here, as when it regards to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. They, they are enemies of God. They have rejected the gospel. But remember, once again, what? Their rejection resulted in the gospel going to you and I. But he says, but as regards election, what? They are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Even, even though right now they have rejected the gospel and stand as enemies of God, God's not done with them. Why? Because he made a promise to the forefathers, to Abraham, to Jacob, to Isaac. He made that promise to them. And what, I love what it says here. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That, that literally could be translated, 
the, the, the gift and the calling of God are not regretted. God doesn't have any regrets. That's what it's saying here. When he called Abraham and said, hey, here's the deal. Here's what I'm going to do for you and through you. He didn't look back and they're like, oh, I regret that. Uh, new plan. I'm not going to do that anymore. He is faithful to his promises. And so the, 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 the blessings that he promised will continue to be there for the people of Israel. And one day they will look upon him whom they have pierced and they will repent. This, the gifts, the, the calling is pretty apparent, right? That's salvation. The, 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 when God calls, he has no regrets. Well, what are the gifts? I think if we look back to Romans 9, 4, we see the gifts. The Israelites, what do the Israelites have? They, it's the, the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. It's, it's all that comes with being the people of God. And so when God calls, he is faithful to his calling and to his gifts. Israel still has a future salvation coming, is what he's saying here. Even though right now they stand as enemies, God still has a plan. Like if you ever stopped and thought about the fact that when God promises something, he always comes through, like 100% of the time. Parents, you ever made a promise to your kid of any kind? Hey, we're going to go do X, Y, Z, whatever, right? But through circumstances that you couldn't control, guess what? It didn't happen, right? Okay, here's the deal. We're going to go to Chick-fil-A before we fly back home, all right? You're like, okay, it's going to be so good. And you pull up and what? It's Sunday, right? It's closed. And you fly out that night. Guess what? There is nothing you can do to fulfill your promise. You are powerless to do so. Game over, right? Chick-fil-A is close to my heart. That's why I thought of the illustration. <laughs> but because I've been very disappointed a few times. Um, but, but you know what I'm talking about, parents? Do you know that God has never had that happen to him? Where he made a promise like, oops, uh, I, I didn't see that coming. Like when he makes a promise, it comes to fruition every time. It's just incredible. That we should be in awe of our God, that that is the power that he has. And anyone here have any regrets about any decisions they've made in their life? Anyone have any of that? Okay, thank you for some few honest people, okay? Everyone can say that. Like, there's no one here who's like, oh, yeah, no regrets. I mean, you're a liar, right? That's a regret, hopefully, for you. God, God has none. Not one regret. His plan is perfect. His ways are perfect. We should, as we consider that, as we, as we meditate upon that, again, worship we should, which we would fall down before him and say, God, your ways are perfect. Your ways are good. How, how could we ever question them as we're going to get to the end here? How could we ever do that? And we worship. We ought to worship. Oh, come, let us adore him. Praise him who is holy. Praise him who is perfect, who does what he says he will do. There's no saying one thing and doing another with our God. Let us praise him. Praise him grasping his mission. Praise him appreciating his morality. Praise him embracing his mercy. Embracing his mercy. We pick it up in verse 32. Or sorry, verse 30. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may re now receive mercy. 
For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Again, he's just kind of retracing this idea that, that salvation first was, was through the Jews, but then they rejected Christ, and now it's to the Gentiles, and then it's going to be back to the Jews again. This is that 30 and 31, that's what he's talking about here. But salvation comes through what? God's mercy. That's the, that's the main point here over and over again. Whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, salvation comes to you only through God's mercy. It's his character to be merciful. Over and over again, as we go through the scriptures, we read about the fact that God's mercies are great. Whether you be an unbelieving Jew or an unbelieving Gentile, the way to salvation is through his mercy. He says in verse 32 there, for God has consigned all to disobedience. That word consigned, it's, it's imprisoned. And we go back to Romans 3.23, we're reminded that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And as a result, we were slaves to our sin. We were imprisoned to it. There was no escaping. The only way we could escape was through the mercy of God. And that is what he's done. MacArthur says this, though not the author of sin, God allowed man to pursue his sinful inclinations so they could receive, so that he could receive glory by demonstrating his grace and mercy to disobedient sinners. We say it here almost weekly because that's what the scriptures say. There are no good people. There are no good people. They were no, they were like, hey, we're, we're, you know, we're making our way to God. There was, there was no like, hey, we came up with this religion so that we can now be made right with you. It was only his initiative. It is only through his initiative that we can be saved. It is only through his mercy that we can be saved. It is through the power of the gospel. We're going back to Romans 1.16. It's because of who he is that we get salvation. Not because we deserve it. No one deserves salvation, but because of his mercy. This word for mercy, it, it carries the basic idea of having compassion for those in need that leads to meeting their need. It's the idea of having a compassion for those in need that leads to meeting their need. And MacArthur says this, man's greatest need is to have his sins removed and be given spiritual life, and God's mercy generously provides that. Our greatest need is to be saved from our sins, to be set free from our slavery to sin, and God has provided that. And this, as Jesus was coming his first time, this was the message that the God of mercy has, was sending his son we read in Luke chapter 1, verses 76 to 79. This was Zechariah. He's giving this, this prophecy about his son, John. He says, a new child, John, John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High. This is Jesus who's coming. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. And now listen. Because of the tender mercy of our God. That's why Christ was sent. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise, what a, what a beautiful picture, the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. The Lord left his throne, come to this earth because of the tender mercy of our God. This morning, have you embraced his mercy? Pray that everyone here could say, yes, I, I remember the time in my life when I embraced his mercy. I, I know that I, up until that time, I was disobedient. I was a rebel against him. I shook my fist against him. But God, in his mercy, opened my eyes to see 
salvation through Jesus Christ, and I place my faith in him, and I receive mercy from God the Father, and my sins have been paid for through Jesus Christ. I pray that everyone here can say that here this morning. And if, if you can't, I, I want to I plead with you to say, today, make today the day of salvation. Don't wait. When we're on vacation, in, in a matter of two days, learned of three deaths. We don't know how many days we have left here on this earth. Don't assume you have many, many years to think this through. Be made right with God today. Embrace his compassion. Embrace his mercy towards you. Oh, come, let us adore him. The last thing we see here, praise him, revering his majesty. Praise him, revering his majesty. So he's written what many people say is, is kind of the, 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 the the best of the best when it comes to the scriptures, Romans 1 through 11. 1 through, 1 through 8, and everybody kind of ignores 9 through 11. But what we're going to, since this is where Paul's ending, 9 through 11, we're going to put this all together. He gets to the end of this, and he can't help but praise God. He breaks into praise as he considers all that he has just said. He says, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Oh, like it's this, it's this, this emotional response. It's this, this proclamation. And he begins to, to think about who God is. The, the depths, this word for depths is, is the extreme point on a scale of extent. So it could be extremely, exceedingly great, very, very, that this is the point. Exceedingly great is his riches, is his wisdom, is his knowledge. We think about his riches. Of course, we know that he owns all things, but we think of the context here. Again, he's thinking about salvation. The riches of salvation towards undeserving sinners. All that he gives undeserving sinners. And he's been telling us that over and over again as we studied these chapters. We think about his wisdom. How he created this plan of salvation. But as you read the scriptures, it's just incredible. And we're reminded over and over again, if it's left to humanity, the plan would fail. But it's not left to humanity. It's left to the God who planned it. And he is working out his plans even today. And you think about the, the way that he came. Why would God be born in a stable to a poor couple in a two-bit town, Bethlehem? Like, why, why do that? It's because he's God and he wants to say, this is what I did for you. Philippians chapter two, I became a servant so that you might be saved. So that after you come to salvation, you have an example to follow. And, and over and over again, we think about all the details. There, there's never a moment where, where things were out of control. There's never a moment when things are out of control in your life. Do you guys understand that? Yes, there's bad days. There's bad weeks. There's bad months. There's bad years. Maybe you've had a bad decade, right? But what? God in his wisdom is allowing these things in your life. And just as he took all the pieces of Christ's life and made an incredible thing, breaking the power of sin and death and destruction and, and, and Satan, God is taking the pieces of your life and he's conforming you to the image of Christ, Romans 8, 29. His wisdom is much beyond ours. His knowledge. <laughs> Just consider God's knowledge. You met some smart people, right? We're just like, man, that guy's so smart. I mean, think of him compared to God. <laughs> I can just be in awe. Just be in awe of his knowledge. And I like how he says here, how unsearchable are his judgments. Like, like how could I ever come to a place where I could do that? How inscrutable his ways. 
When you think about these, this, this whole picture here, he, he's beyond all comparison. He's beyond all comparison. And as you, as, as you, as you kind of follow these words, what happens? God is placed in his rightful place and he is much greater than you and I. When you, when you stop and consider these like, man, you, Lord, you are awesome and I am nothing. And so then he, he comes to the, 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 the logical conclusion for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor. Now, we've tried, let's be honest, We've tried to be counselors to God. Hey, just a heads up, Lord, here's what you should be doing in my life. Here's the blessings you should be giving me. Here, here's, the, here's, the, here's the plan that you should be fulfilling for me. How foolish, right? Like when we sit here, like, oh, okay, yeah. It does seem a little foolish. But we do it. But we got to get our eyes on his majesty. We have to get our eyes on how great he is. And when it is hard, and some days are very hard, we need to just rest before the throne and saying, God, I trust you. Because your ways are inscrutable or unfathomable. Truly, your ways are higher than my ways. Truly, your thoughts are much higher than my thoughts. And I'll trust you. Who has known the mind of the Lord? That's from Isaiah 40, verse 13. Then he quotes from Job chapter 41, verse 11. Or who has given a gift that he might be repaid? The whole Catholic thing of penance? Ridiculous. What, what, what are you going to, how are you going to repay God who is giving you everything? Right? It, it, you can't do it. No one can repay God. That what he has given us is is incredible riches. I mean, just think about just the physical. You are here today because he knit you together in your mother's womb. You have breath in your lungs because he's made it so. The The air that you breathe, the oxygen, he created it. The ability for your body to operate is a miracle every day. And when God says done, it's done. This is done. Everything that you have, your resources, your talents, it's, it's from him. So how would you ever repay him? And then we come to salvation, the debt that we owe him in regards to our sin against him. How could you ever begin to repay that debt? You can't. It's Christmas coming, right? I mean, just think about, you know, you decide, okay, this year I'm doing it upright. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a really nice gift. But somehow you and your spouse are on a different page, right? That never happens. But let's just say it happened. And you got this, you know, $3,000 diamond, whatever. And, and you, you know, here, here you go. And... You know, you, you got a $25 Starbucks card in return, right? Like, that's a pretty big gap there, right? Now, now what's the, the person could think with the, give the $3,000 gift? Look, well, doesn't she even love me? You know, like a $25 Starbucks card? Like, I don't know. Like, do you know that God never stops and wonders if you love him because you haven't repaid him? It's not how it works. And the other person, the, the $20, they're like, oh man, I didn't, like how did this happen? Probably not really a happy Christmas morning, probably um, the dynamic there. But, um, but, but what? You would be like, okay, well now I got to go get them something. But you can't do that with God. You can't. You can never repay him. We can't counsel him. We can't repay him. Stott says this, we are not God's counselor. He is ours. We are not God's creditor. He is ours. We depend entirely on him to teach us and to save us. The initiative in both revelation and redemption lies in grace. The attempt to reverse roles would be to dethrone God and defy ourselves, deify ourselves. 
So the answers to both questions in 34 and 35 is nobody. Nobody has repaid him. Nobody has counseled him. It's impossible. Why? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. He is the source of all things from him. Everything that we have is from him. He is the creator. He is is the one who gives life. It's all from him. He's the source of all things. He, He is the sustainer. Everything is through him. Colossians 1.17 says, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Why does the sun shine in the day and the moon at night? Because God's made it so. Why does the snow and the rain still come? Because God has made it so. And the moment he says, and you read, I've been studying Revelation all year. Remember when he says, nope, done? That will be done. When he says, now the sun will burn Many people on the earth, guess what? It will happen because he is the one who's over it all. It's from him, it's through him, and it's to him. He is the goal. He he is the, 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 the alpha and the omega. He's the beginning and the end. He is the heir of everything. Our purpose as creation is to worship him. Everything is to his glory. To him be the glory for how long? Forever. Amen. Which means what? So be it. So be it. For all of eternity, he deserves the glory. There is no one who comes close to deserving your worship this morning. How are you doing in your worship? Do you praise him grasping his mission Do you praise him, appreciating his morality, that he's unchanging, that what he says will always come to pass? Do you embrace his, his, have you embraced his mercy? Are you revering his majesty? Are you growing in your love and knowledge of him on a daily basis? Is that a goal of yours? God, I just want to know you more, and so I'm going to study your word. I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to get together with other believers so that we can stir one another up to, to, to praise and worship, that we might know him more and more. God has just given us this incredible 11 chapters of theology. When we begin the new year, we're going to see the so what. Here's how we ought to live. But here in the ought to live, Romans 12 through 16, we're going to be learning that it's a life of worship. Our response should be a life of worship. Stott says this, all true worship is a response to the self-revelation of God in Christ and Scripture and arises from our reflection on who he is and what he has done. It was the tremendous truths of Romans 1 through 11 which provoked Paul's outburst of praise. The worship of God is evoked, informed, and inspired by the vision of God. Worship without theology is bound to degenerate into idolatry. Why? Because then we make a God of our own, and we worship that. And that's what our sinful hearts would long to do. But we must worship the God of the Scriptures. Oh, come, let us adore him. May we passionately pursue him, seeking to grow in our knowledge of him, that we might worship him for who he truly is. He is an awesome God. Redemption this week, I want to encourage you to be intentional, to be intentional to grow in your worship. Take time in your day to worship to be still before him and know that he is God, to reflect on his character and his work, to to give him praise for all that he has done, and then live accordingly, living a life of worship, being conformed into his image. And may the Lord make us better and better worshipers until that day where we will worship him face to face. Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Lord God, we love you. Thank you so much that you have loved us. Your mercy, your compassion, your grace. Lord, truly we fail 
to have words when we begin to think about how awesome you really are. But God, we, we long to be better worshipers. God, in our pride, so often we want to take credit when, Lord, we should know that all glory goes to you. God, may that be our testimony of our lives. That, God, everywhere that we go, that we want to proclaim that's for you and through you and to you. God, we just long for you to be glorified. God, if our hearts have become cold, God, I pray that you would help us to be disciplined, to spend time just reflecting on who you are, all that you've done. Lord, that our hearts might be warmed, that our hearts might be changed as we see you in all your fullness. God, I thank you that in your awesome power, you decided to save us. And God, I would pray this morning, if there's anyone here, God, would you once again show your mercy today? If there's anyone here that has not placed their trust in you, God, would you open their eyes to see that you are who you say you are? If they would place their trust in you, Lord, that they would be forgiven of their sin, that, Lord, you would reconcile them to you, that you would make them your child, and that they would have life forevermore. Lord, we thank you for this time in your word. Lord, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. For more information about our church, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com.